Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Professor Keith Ward, who graduated in philosophy from Cardiff University, although he was initially a musician, and in theology from Oxford. He taught philosophy at the universities of Glasgow, St Andrews and King's College, London. He was Dean of Trinity Hall, Cambridge, and then Professor of Moral and Social Theology and subsequently of the History and Philosophy of Religion at King's London. And then he was elected Regius Professor of Divinity at Oxford. He's the author of nearly 50 books, and most recently, his engaging autobiography, Adventures in Belief, humorously subtitled, How I Discovered the Meaning of Life, the Universe, and Everything, and then in brackets, Possibly. Welcome, Keith, to Imaginal Inspirations. Thank you, David. Uh, After that introduction, uh, my first question is normally a, a shaping moment involving your choice of work. But maybe you'd say a little bit as you're answering this about your your background as a musician as well, and then how you discovered that you were a philosopher. Ah, well, I went to Cardiff to study music, and the short story is that I just wasn't good enough. I was uh, going to be a composer, and I did in fact compose, but everything I composed was absolute tripe. So um, I gave that up, and then I had to do something else. While I was at Cardiff, I took uh, three other subjects, one of which was philosophy, and it turned out I loved philosophy, and I turned out to be good at it, to my surprise, and uh, that was it, really. So um, it's, it's my failure as a musician which made me a philosopher and theologian. Being I'm quite moment. happy about that. Actually. Good. Well, so are we. But the shaping moment was that. Was there something a moment when you, as it were, discovered you were a philosopher? Well, well, that was. Um, we studied uh, in the first year of philosophy. It was from a public. Well, I loved it really. So I just started reading all the philosophy books, and that was it. I just. So, and the rest is history, as they say. Um, rest history is well almost because I did decide, having got my degree, that I would um, quite like to be ordained as a priest for various you know, reasons, and uh, I went to college, Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, and uh, I uh, did my theology and. Uh, the authorities there, who were rather conservative at the time, decided that I ought not to get ordained because I didn't believe enough things. Uh, so I didn't get ordained, and I had to think of something else to do. And in those days, very long time ago, there actually were jobs in the academic world, and people quite liked the idea of somebody 
with a philosophy degree from Oxford. So I got a job in the University of Glasgow teaching logic. And that was my first job. And the rest is history. I just went on teaching philosophy for the rest of my life. And in, in fact, it so happens that we overlapped at St. Andrews, even though we didn't know each other, because you no, were at St. Andrews good. after you were at Glasgow. Ours, yes. Um, my my next question is is to do with any influential mentors or teachers uh, and and some any advice and guidance that they give. You might also mention your not that he was a mentor, but you know, your relationship and conversations with Freddie Ayer, because I think that will be of interest to our readers. But any other any other any influential mentors or teachers from those early days? Well, when I graduated from Cardiff, I was at Oxford and I um, did philosophy as well as theology there. And uh, my supervisor, my moral tutor, as they were called in those days, was Gilbert Ryle, who was... Uh, oh, yes. Very well-known philosopher. Uh, and the other two uh, people who taught me that were Jeffrey Warnock and mm-hmm. Freddie Ayer. And... Uh, Richard Hare, the moral philosopher. Oh, yes. So it was a, it was a golden age of that sort of philosophy. But on the other hand, I disagreed with everything they ever said. And they disagreed with me and everything I ever said. And that's what philosophy is. So um, we all enjoyed it very much. But Ayer um, is a very strange person because... He was in the English empiricist, or British, I should say, empiricist tradition, which says all knowledge begins with ideas. Now, ideas are in the mind, of course. So what he was saying, like all the other empiricists, is that conscious ideas in the mind are where we start our knowledge from. And in fact... They are the the ultimate constituents of the world. So mind is prior to matter. In my day, in the 1950s, I think, there were no materialists. They didn't exist. Uh, Gilberto was an ordinary language philosopher, and uh, I loved uh, having tutorials with him. Um, and there, of course, was this very radical empiricist who thought the objective physical world is a logical construction out of my or our sense data, which are private and known to us, and that's where knowledge starts. So I, of course, was a well-known atheist, but I couldn't see why he was, except that he in Eton and hated the college chapel. He was Jewish and he didn't like the college chapel at all. So uh, he thought, well, he actually said he wasn't an atheist because he couldn't understand the word God. So he didn't know um, that he didn't believe in God because he didn't think the word made sense. So (laughs) that was one of his peculiar views. Um, And I thought, well, if you thought all knowledge begins with experience, and consciousness, then it makes most sense to think, well, I didn't make the world up, so there is some consciousness other than me which did. So I always thought he was a theist. 
which made him very angry. Yes. <laughs> In fact, um, so there was a relationship of, I think, uh, uh, difference, but respect, really. But he, he just, it wasn't a philosophical view on his part. It was more a, a hatred of the idea of God. That's fairly typical of philosophers, actually. It's very odd. They just don't like God. They would rather there wasn't a God because they see God as prying, judging, damning individual who's always interfering with your life and not letting you make your own decisions. And of course, I think they're completely wrong about this, but uh, that, was, uh, that was the way they thought of it. So God wasn't prominent. But the sort of philosophy we did actually was very open to empiricist, that is to say, philosophy starting with experience, with consciousness, was very um, sympathetic to that approach. Um, so that was it. They weren't mentors exactly. They were brilliant opponents who shaped my ideas by disagreement. <laughs> yes, that's wonderful. And and I know that at one point you, you had a, an interview much later with Freddie Ayer and you asked him about language, truth and logic. Maybe you just yeah. tell our listeners about that, what he well, said. Of course he did. He not only said it to me, he published it in a book called Some Questions of Philosophy, in which he renounced the verification principle which for which he'd been most famous and a lot of people misunderstand that in his book but uh, i had thought that our experiences the truths that we try to say about the world or we say something true we need to verify it by our experience but by that he meant our personal private experience he didn't mean doing experiments in laboratories. <laughs> he thought there were there are experiences you are having and you build up the world from that. And he came to see that this was just wrong, that it wasn't, what he had thought was, you can only make sense of a statement if it ultimately refers to something in your personal experience. And he just came to think, well, that, that was actually wrong. And it was wrong for technical reasons, but also for the common sense reason that we can talk about possible life on Mars with no personal experience about it whatsoever. It's just obvious you can talk about things of which you have no experience. So he, he and, gave that up. And how, how do you see the story of his, his near-death experience? Because I think this was an interesting episode and they're towards the uh, end of his life. He did have a near-death, he died clinically, and he did have experiences. Now, um, this had quite a marked effect on him, but uh, only for about six months, and yes. then he reverted to his uh, usual beliefs. Um, but it shook him, and he thought, well, perhaps at least he thought there, there could be life without the body, that is, after death. Mm. Because that had always been implicit in his views, because um, the brain is just a physical object, which is a logical construct, an experience in his own view. 
So he should always have been open to life after death. But of course, God was around there somewhere. So he didn't like that thought. Anyway, having had a near-death experience, he became convinced there could be, there could be a life after death. But he didn't want God to be there. No, like God. <laughs> no, I think that's very good. And, and I remember reading in The Spectator that you know, Sir Herman Bondi they wrote a repost to his article and said he ought to pull himself together. Um, yes, you know, that. That you, you can't, that. yes, you can't betray materialism. It's really not on. Anyway, I just oh, wanted to ask well, you another question about whether there was still much influence of R.G. Collingwood, because I think he died ah. very you know, un untimely in 1943, and his essay yeah. on metaphysics from 1940 is a very good critique of um, what we've been talking about, language, truth, and logic. Yes. When I was at Oxford, Collingwood had no influence at all, because uh, it was the view of Gilbert Ryle as of Wittgenstein in Cambridge, who was there at the same time, that uh, metaphysics was impossible. It was a mistake and you couldn't do it. And so they refused to make metaphysical statements by which they meant statements about the nature of reality, which are not just matters of ordinary common sense. So it's like the French put it sometimes uh, of saying you can't you can't have a grand narrative that you can't have a big theoretical scheme about the whole of reality. You must, as Voltaire said, cultivate your garden, just get on with analyzing ordinary language and the mistakes it sometimes leads you to have, like God and things like that. So Collingwood was. Uh, extinct, actually, when I was there. And the most famous case of this is a, an, a lecture by G.E. Moore, who gave a lecture saying that uh, idealism, that is a great metaphysical view about the nature of the universe, was totally false, and common sense had to be believed. And he won the day. I mean, in Oxford, at my time, it was common sense, or what they called ordinary language philosophy. It was very, very clever, but I think it was totally misguided because, of course, the question, what is the nature of ultimate reality, is a very real question. And just to press the irony home, A.J. Eyre, who said metaphysics was impossible, was actually doing metaphysics. Indeed. That... The actual nature of reality is personal experience. Well, that, that you, you can't avoid doing metaphysics. That's what Collingwood was arguing. He, and he said yes. that they, and in fact, he really demolished that status of, of a criticism of metaphysics in that very book. And, and he know. said that they, so obviously they just didn't read it. Yes, they did read it. Um, they were... But that's just what philosophy was then. Um, there's still that sort of philosophy around today in British academic life, but it's not as prevalent. It's just now it's one small stream. I mean, you get the odd Rileyan or Wittgensteinian around, but they're not a majority any longer. But I just when I was at Oxford, they were that was what they was, you know, and I was regarded 
probably still am, but I certainly was then regarded as uh, completely wrong in every respect. <laughs> but quite clever, so they didn't mind. <laughs> well, the I, I know it's interesting that both John Dupre, the philosopher of science, and Ian McGilchrist, they read um, essay on metaphysics when they were 16. Oh, uh, one was a scholar at Eton and the other a scholar at Winchester. Um, right. Anyway, let's go on to other books that have been important to you. I mean, there's probably countless. I don't know whether you can even isolate one or two. Actually, the one that's been most important is Kant, Emmanuel Kant, uh, his critiques of reason. And I think Kant is very much misunderstood because people, a lot of people think he was a rationalist who had no feelings, but wanted to use reason to just work out in the abstract what the universe was like. They're quite wrong. And his books, of course, his, his famous books, are called critiques of reason. They're not um, propounding reason, they're critiquing reason. People somehow don't see that. Uh, and he, Kant was really saying, and this is what influenced me, that the nature of reality is not knowable by reason alone. Reason is confined to this world, and rational arguments are confined to the physical, indeed, the ordinary common sense world, but that's not the ultimate truth of our reality. That's what Kant was really saying. He was defending God, freedom and immortality, none of which are commonsensical these days. Um, so uh, he was the greatest philosophical influence on me. And then anything else you'd like to mention um, at this stage? Because it uh, probably helped shape your own um, idealist philosophy uh, to, to some extent. Yes. Well, um, well, Kant was an idealist. This is another thing people don't always realized they say he was opposed to idealism and he did in fact write something saying idealism wasn't true but by idealism he meant something different <laughs> uh, he meant the view that reason could tell you the nature of non-physical reality and he objected to that it wasn't reason which is that Kant actually said I, I wanted to limit reason in order to make room for faith um, so he was an idealist he gave rise to the German school of idealism people like Hegel mm. uh, and that school, yes yes and they were very influential in england um at the beginning of the 20th century uh, collingwood is probably a sort of very late um phase of that sort of philosophical view but it disappeared from english philosophical life uh by all these people like Freddie air saying you can't do that sort of thing and you can't have a metaphysical like that while doing it. Yeah, indeed. Um, and then one of the uh, int things that interests me about Kant as well is his engagement with Swedenborg, um, because yes. on the one hand, he, he read Arcana Celestia, in, in, presumably in Latin, um, and then yeah. he heard about Swedenborg's ostensible you know, extrasensory powers. He sent his yeah. own 
um, investigator, he was satisfied um, that they, this wasn't a fraud. There was a real, they were real reports. And yet yeah. he wrote Dreams of a Spirit Seer in 1766, making a fool of him. Well, it's, um, I don't think that's, I mean, you're right. That's not you, quite right. No, he didn't make a fool of him. He satirized Swedenborg. Yes, uh, fair and enough. He never escaped Swedenborg's influence. And if you ask, what did Kant really believe? Well, later in his life, he wrote religion within the limits of reason, but also in the critiques, he clearly has a view that there is a transcendental spiritual world which is made up of persons in relationship who are free and uh, who are not embodied, right? So he's got a sort of Swedenborgian view, which he never gave up. Uh, very, so very when interesting. He wrote, yeah. When he wrote Dreams of a Spirit Seer, he was really struggling with himself and uh, could he found his philosophy on this uh, visionary figure, Swedenborg. Well, he didn't found his philosophy on that, but he had views very similar to Swedenborg's. And uh, when he states these views, uh, it's God, freedom and immortality in a spiritual realm of free agents uh, who are not embodied in the physical world. Uh, but he just said, reason can't prove this. No, that's and, and indeed, Swedenborg's spiritual world was exactly that, persons in relationship. I see this as a, a different kind of empiricism, you know, on based in sort of, you know, more, an extent, extended capacity to perceive, which people don't normally have because they can't see beyond the physical world, as it were. I think that's exactly right. And uh, once you found um, knowledge on experience, well, you have to ask what sorts of experience are there? And probably the experiences that Freddie Air had are not a very reliable guide to, to the spiritual life. I mean, I, <laughs> no, I agree. Well, he saw a red light, um, which is pretty unique. Most people see a white light. <laughs> Maybe yes. he, was, he was told to stop something. Anyway, yeah. Keith, what are there any sort of formative experiences in your life that have shaped the way you see the world? Well, yes, I have to say there are. I was actually intellectually an, an atheist when I did have an experience, which I would honestly describe as an experience of Christ. Now, of course, this wasn't Jesus in a historical form, but it was an experience of a spiritual figure. And I think that may take many forms and names in different uh, cultures. But for me, it was the experience of Christ, which convinced me that there was a spiritual reality underlying the physical world. Um, so that was um, part of my early experience. Uh, it happened, actually, strangely enough, when I was in the Royal Air Force, which uh, mm. is a funny place for it to happen. But um, And that was why I thought I would get ordained following that experience. So that was there. It wasn't... It was a coincidence or convergence of intellectual beliefs about consciousness being primary and then personal experience 
of a spiritual reality which was of an unembodied spiritual being which I identified with Jesus. I know that's so interesting what you say culturally because in the near-death experience phenomenology people often talk about a being of light and, yes. and so the being of light is very can be variously interpreted some people they would say well the Buddha is the being of light or or some other yeah. figure but you know and this is the what Carol Zaleski calls the structure of the religious imagination um, yeah. which I think is an int- interesting um, phrase yes I think that's true I mean I am now a priest of the Church of England so I, I go along with the basic uh, tenets of Christianity. So I think it was probably associated with the historical Jesus, but I can see it can take many other forms. And um, I think um, that they will be genuine forms of spiritual encounters. So I have a very open attitude towards religious and spiritual experiences. Yes, in- indeed. And have you had any powerful experiences associated with music? Well, um, yes, I think I would say for me, um, music has spiritual depth that it does uh, communicate. But I think that there, there is a uh, an unspoken language of music. I mean, that uh, music conveys um, ways of feeling and responding to the world without language. And in that way, I find it superior to words because yeah, indeed. Words are very inadequate. Because, yeah, so music is very important to me, which is partly why I'm Christian, I suppose, because there's a lot of music in Christianity. <laughs> um, and um, I'm, I used to be a chorister in, a, in, a, in an Anglican church, but they were an atheist, but I was still a chorister. Um, so music is a daughter of the spiritual world for me, more than words. Yes, no, I, I agree with that. And what would be some of your favorite pieces in that respect? Oh, God. Well, um, <laughs> there has to be an element of subjectivity, and this may sound rather odd, but I quite a devotee of the ring, the music. Of oh, the ring. yes. Uh, I think the story is pretty ridiculous, but the music is fantastic. <laughs> and that's why I prefer the music to the words, really. Uh, I prefer it sung in some language I can't understand, which is difficult these days. But, um, yeah, I like the ring. Uh, but I, I have, obviously, too obviously, really, Mozart and Bach. Um, yes. A very high place. Very much for me, um, too. But I'm also a romantic, and um, uh, I quite like people like Schubert uh, on through people like Brahms and uh, and Chopin. For the, I'm a pianist, actually, so Chopin is quite important to me. Except at my age, I can't play him anymore very well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so. well, I'm sure you had a lot of pleasure doing that. Um, and yeah, interestingly, absolutely. I was speaking to Irvin Laszlo on this series, and he was a he was a pro, you know, prodigy concert pianist, and he still plays. And Chopin is one of his favorite composers as well, so far as playing is concerned. Yeah, I think most pianists would feel that because uh, he um, was a genius. The trouble is that Chopin had very large hands. And yes. I, uh, <laughs> 
uh, as did Rachmaninoff, had huge hands. And that's a great help to playing their music, actually. So, but the yes, rest I... of it do with the best we can. Yes, I've heard that. And then um, uh, we're coming towards the end, uh, Keith. Um, do you have a f- proverb you live by or a, some favorite quotations? Well, I have a little mantra. Uh, which belongs to my Christian tradition, obviously. And the mantra is, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And uh, I use that as the thought of the spiritual principle, which is in the heart of everyone, is the hope of what we look for in the spiritual life. So that's my little mantra, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Beautiful. Uh, There's a a huge amount to unpack in that, Keith. And then uh, any advice you'd give to your younger self from your your current vantage point? A younger? Well, no. I mean, everything in my life has happened by accident, really. I mean, um, my conversion was an accident because I only went into the church which was in the Middle East, uh, to play the organ. And uh, that was an accident that I had a spiritual experience. Then it was an accident that they told me I didn't believe enough things to be ordained, so I started to teach philosophy. Then it was an accident that I got appointed to a chair of divinity in Oxford. Um, the whole thing's been an accident, but it probably <laughs> well. You all happens a happy, happy accidents or series happy of happy accidents, I would say, if you're going to use that language. Yes. Uh, Keith, thank you so much for being my guest on Imaginal Inspirations. Well, thank you, Dave. It's just been good talking to you.